Every week when I when I come to a passage and try to put a message together, I, I generally have at the very top of my my message, my notes here, what the big idea is. I wanna I wanna know right off the top. Someone, uh, one person called an elevator idea. It's uh, you should be able to say uh, in the you know, 15, 20 second elevator ride uh, what you're trying to say for the next 30 minutes or so. And if you can't, then you, you need to try a little harder. And someone else uh, said it, uh, I think is, they called it the, the 2 o'clock thing. I should be able to call you at 2 o'clock in the morning and uh, wake you up out of a dead sleep and say, what are you preaching Sunday? And you should be able to uh, summarize it very quickly around 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, this uh, this sermon is uh, one of those easier ones to at least figure the big idea out. And it's very, very simple. Uh, true faith shows no prejudice. One of there were some things that I had read uh, read this passage many, many times before and had never noticed until uh, digging a little bit deeper and in the right places. And hopefully you will gather some new knowledge as well as uh, be strengthened in your faith from this. James is continuing his thought uh, from the previous chapter in verse 27 when he talked about true religion and how that is uh, demonstrated in two different ways. We won't take the time to develop all of that because we did that two weeks ago. But it's, it's not specifically uh, isolated to visiting orphans and widows. But it's the balance of having a, of, of an inside and an outside. It's the, uh, I don't focus primarily on holiness uh, and forget about the helping. It, there is a service as well as a sanctification. And James picks up on that, continues that theme, if you will, of visiting these less desirable people. Just as it was in that day, it is the same uh, to an extent, this uh, this generation that uh, it is not um, uh, widows and orphans aren't necessarily the people you you long to be around unless you have uh, a burden or, or you know an extra compassion or not uh, because in the human scope of things they are not the people that can do for me the same or more than I can do for them I and mean, sometimes they they can't do for me anything uh, and so generally we pick our friends based on the people who can, it's a give and a take right. We try to teach our kids that with uh, with friends. You can't just take. You have to be able to give. And uh, good friendships are established when we uh, we have a give and a take. Well, when, when James talks about pure religion here and he talks about visiting the orphans and the widows, he is basically saying that there is no give and take here. It's all give uh, and in your, in, a, in your act of service. And he continues that thought with this idea in, in chapter 2 of, uh, you could call it discrimination. You could call it prejudice. You could call it uh, favor, uh, uh, respect of persons. I had made no connection to Mark and Kathy until I was reading it this morning. I thought, no respect. Mark, I get no respect. You know. But anyways, <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield thing. Yeah. But uh, he, uh, uh, there, you could say it a lot of different ways. But uh, James addresses the natural tendency that is just as prevalent today as it was back then. And we can think about in those days when there were uh, there there was still a bit of Jewish um, uh, pride in that we're the predominant force in the church, or that this this emanated from us. Uh, Jesus was a Jew, and and this was to the Jews first, and all of those all of those uh, that that sentiment. And that's not so prevalent today, but we do see it in other ways. And I think about even with uh, where our country is, uh, with uh, all of the other. Uh, the things that have been going on, not just recently, but over the past, well, I guess as long as our country's been around, we've we've uh, had we've had issues with this, and it's not just isolated to the United States of America, but it's a it's a worldwide problem. It's a human uh, issue. It's a it's a 
problem with the corruption of man. And that is uh, addressed here by James specifically to Christians. And he basically says in verse number one, as Christians don't show prejudice or partiality. The the words that we read there are respective persons. And that's a a phrase that literally means partiality. It's actually, uh, this is one of the things that I had never really uh, understood before. The word the words that we read, respective persons there, is actually one Greek word. I'm going to try my best to not say it the wrong way, but it's prosopolipsia. And it means to take the face. Uh, we wouldn't normally say it that way. We would say something like uh, uh, to take something at face value. Or, as the sermon title kind of reveals, judging a book by its cover. If I say don't judge a book by its cover, or to take something at face value, you would understand what I meant by that. Well, in, in, that, in that time, they would have just used the one word there, prosopolipsia, uh, which was translated in many different ways, partiality, um, prejudice, and things like that. Now, it's slightly different here than just having favoritism or having a bias. We want to make sure we understand these things because it'll make sense a little bit more as we dig into what he's saying. Those, those words, favoritism and bias, simply uh, imply favoring something over another. For instance, you have... Um, you have a, a, a favorite group of people. They're, they're usually called your friends. And though you're supposed to be friendly to everybody, there are people that we just naturally like being around a little bit more than others. Or maybe I should say there are some people that we really don't like being around uh, as opposed to others. And we look forward to spending time with some people. And when we, other times we have to prepare ourselves to spend time with other people. You remember when you were told when you were a kid you were going over to so-and-so's house and you were either really excited or you're like, oh, what am I going to do over there? Uh, what, what are we going to talk about? What are, they don't have any toys. They don't have any kids to play with. It's, 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 it's not a look forward to type of a thing. It's more of a, I got to. And uh, that, so that's, what, that's not what he's talking about, but it goes a little bit deeper and it's closer to our understanding of prejudice. The definition of prejudice is not necessarily just favoring one thing over another, but it means to make a judgment without a due examination. It means to look at something and quickly make a decision based on that first impression or whatever might be sooner than a first impression, just that first glance. It would be the very extreme opposite of love at first sight. It would be uh, judging at first sight. I, I just I don't like the way, and we see that with, uh, with nationalities, we see that with skin color. Uh, we, what we're, what we're going to see with James here is that he's going to see it's going to deal with the physical appearance, not necessarily in the color of skin, and not necessarily in the the country of origin, but in the clothes. But it's still just as shallow. It's still just as wrong. And James is going to approach it from this manner. So he begins with a hypothetical illustration because the really the one instruction here is don't verse number one. Uh, don't have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and prejudice or and respective persons. Excuse me one second. So then he begins to explain and expand this thought. You see in your notes there that there are three reasons, but we're going to explain it first through the illustration. Now, this is probably not an unusual thing for these people to grasp. It might be a little bit different in our uh, assembly, uh, in our in our culture, but uh, in their assembly, he, he approaches it this way. Two men come into your assembly. One is a rich man. He is wealthy. This is the Roman culture. And the Roman culture favored the wealthy. 
I'll explain that in a little bit more in just a minute. But this man comes in. He's wearing gold rings. He's wearing bright, shiny clothes. He is someone who is trying to show that he is rich or at least give the appearance that he is rich. If someone walks in today with gold rings on their ears or on their fingers, we think that's pretty normal, right? I mean, most women wear earrings and most, most married people wear rings. And it's not, it's not a like, oh, what are you trying to say there? That you're married? You're better than me because I'm... No, we're not, we, don't, we don't feel that way. But in those days, to have a gold ring meant something. It might be something like if I was walking around with a ring on each finger. Like, that's a little overkill. Uh, maybe if I'm trying to prove a point. In sports, uh, what's the best way to show that you're that, that the one up uh, the other team? Show how many rings you got. You know, uh, if, if you've only got one ring on your, on, on your record, but I've got six or I've got ten, uh, that, that, and if I were to walk around showing off my rings, you'd be like, are you, you're trying to gain favor. You're trying to gain approval uh, through your rings. And that's probably a similar, uh, uh, if we follow that vein of thought, then uh, you get a better idea of what he's trying to do. But ultimately, what his man is trying to do is seek attention and privilege by coming into this Christian assembly. Now, as I said a minute ago, Roman law catered to the wealthy, and so it was to their advantage to show off their wealth. Because if I look wealthy, and I am wealthy, I have more advantages. I have better. I have that, that privilege that I don't have if you don't know that I'm wealthy or that, that, uh, that I, if I am literally poor. And James uh, continues his thought that if this man walks in and you pay attention to him, he says you show respect, you regard his presence, and more than that, you begin to offer him places of privilege, sit here in a good place. Now, this is something that none of you would understand, but in those days, sitting in the front was the, was the prime seats, right? In Baptist churches, prime seats are generally the back pew uh, or a parking lot. But uh, in, in, in that day, picture going to a baseball game, right? The closer you are to the front, the more you're going to pay, right? Obviously, we didn't sell any of our VIP seats today or ever. But if you ever want a really, if you ever want a really cushy pew, try one of these first two because they're like, they're like new. So they, they don't really get used. But uh, they, that, would, that would be someone coming in, and let's say the ushers come in, and, or just a regular member, and you see someone come in, and they've got uh, all the rings on, and they've got, they, they, in our, let's put it in our, in our culture, they pull up in a Lamborghini. You watch them pull up, or they pull up in a limousine. That turns heads, right? A limousine in Sherman, New York, and it's not prom. I mean, what's going on? And then this guy pulls up right to the door. The butler walks out or whatever the guy is, a chauffeur. He opens the door and someone gets out and he's dressed and he's got an Armani suit on and he's got, uh, he's got rings on his finger. He's got, uh, I mean, just, he just looks like he's oozing money. And he walks into the, to the, to the, to the, to the front door there. They would say, and James is saying here, so what you would do is you would say, well, why don't you come and sit here in the front row? Because in the front row, then everybody gets to see you. If you sit in the back, no one knows you're here. So sit in the front so that everyone will get to see you and we will enjoy the benefit of being able to say over lunch that afternoon, so-and-so, the richest man in town, came to our church, came to our assembly. He says, here's the problem. Because on the same, at the same time, a man came in and he was dressed poorly. This was a, a beggar, a pauper. The, the Greek word there used to describe this poor man describes the most severe form of poverty that there is. It says, and it describes his clothes as vile raiment. 
uh, this vile raiment is actually the same word that James used in, in uh, the, uh, the first chapter when he described the filthiness in verse 21 about laying aside the, 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 the filthiness of the world. And I described it as the caked on filth. We're not just talking about a few smears, but we're talking about caked on filth. Now, in chapter 1 and verse 21, it was talking about moral filth. Now, James uses that same descriptor for physical filth. So here's a guy that comes in that looks like he was sleeping with the pigs. And he didn't brush himself off. He didn't do anything. And he walks in right after the guy with all the money in the limousine. And he walks in. He's got shoes and clothes on, but they're, they're just nasty. And he stinks. And he's got, you know, uh, was it Pigpen and the Snoopy cartoons? And he's always got the flies and the bu- dust cloud around him. That's this literal, uh, literal image walking in. And what do you do? Get away. Okay, yeah, you're welcome at church, but what did he say? He says two things. Stand thou over there, distancing myself from him, or sit here at my feet. Now, when I, my, my imagination gets the best of me sometimes because he says sit here under my footstool. I'm thinking footstool's in church. And then secondly, I'm thinking about this person crawling under the footstool during church. I'm thinking that's, that's weird. But uh, there, there's, 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 a, there's a, a, an idea of, of subjection here, saying I'm superior to you sit here at my feet. Uh, and in those cultures, especially in the Asian cultures, uh, showing someone your feet is, a, is, is, a, is an insult. I remember uh, when my, my parents lived in New York City and my dad tells a story about how he, he was at a home, and he, uh, I think it was a Lebanese home, and he crossed his feet. You know, you just, you're sitting there and you cross your legs and his foot was pointing at this man. And he says, um, I don't know how he brought it up, but he says, I don't take this because I'm more Americanized, but he says where I come from, what you just did is like one of the most extreme insults you could do to me. You're showing me your foot, saying, I'm better than you. I'm, you're, you're under me. And that's what James is saying that this guy is doing here. He's saying, so the two men come in. The one guy comes in and he looks good. And so you give him a place of favor. You give him a place of prominence and importance. A second guy comes in and he is filthy and he stinks and he is undesirable in every way imaginable. And so you do the natural thing and you say, stay away from me. If you're going to stay in this building, don't sit by me. You ever done that on an airplane? You know what I'm talking about. Your Christianity comes out. You're sitting there, and there's one there's one seat in the middle because no one takes a middle seat right away, right? And you're sitting there, and then all of a sudden people start coming on the plane, and you're like, "Please don't sit down by me. Please don't sit." Okay, you could. And then maybe a, a seven foot giant walks in, and you're like, "Oh, please don't sit by me," because they take up more room. Or you know, a four and a foot pound person comes in. Oh, please don't sit by me. And, and sometimes, you know, we try these little tactics and things. I've, I've heard people, they'll start sneezing and wiping their nose and everything, trying to look as gross as they can so that no one will want to sit by them. Uh, and if you've been that way and if you've ever been that person having to walk down and you know the, the plane is completely full and there's only middle seats left and you know that nobody's excited to see your face. And you finally just pick the unlucky, unlucky person and you're just like, ha, you win. I need to get in. And they're not excited about that in any way. Uh, they, they don't like that because, uh, but that's, that's, that's in church. Have you ever had to sit beside someone that doesn't smell very good? Have you ever had to sit beside someone that was just gross in every way possible? And imagine trying to worship alongside that person, have them sitting right there with you in a packed house, watching them do and, and be just, uh, the, just the, the, the epitome of gross filthiness. James rebukes these people for this because this is what they would have done. They would have pushed him away. And he says, what you've done then is that you've made distinctions among yourselves. 
basically you have discriminated there in verse number four. Are you not then partial in yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts? He says the first thing then that you've made a distinction among yourself. I'm better than he is or he is much better than I am. But then he says that by doing so, you are assessing spiritual status based on physical appearance. He says that you're you're determining how someone's spiritual worth by the way that they came dressed. We've all heard the stories about multimillionaires living uh, like paupers and nobody knew it until they died. And if I'd have known he was a millionaire, I'd have been nicer to him. Why? You know, it's usually because I would hope he would put me in as well. Or the other way around, someone looks awful and we realize, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with them until we realize it happens a lot in elementary school, right? The uncool kid totally becomes cool when he brings the right snack at lunchtime. I don't want to have anything to do with you until you brought Oreos. Now we're buddies. Or until you brought the thing that I needed. That, and and, and we're, we're all based on, we're, we're, assessing a, we're, we're establishing a rank. And he says within the church, this, this ought not be so. But he says also, uh, by doing so, uh, you have become judges with evil thoughts. Judging with a, a, a wicked thought process. Basing opinions and behavior simply on looks and appearances and possessions. John Polhill said the problem of discrimination is a perennial one for Christians because it is a tendency of basic human nature to favor those we serve to profit from the most. And that's so true. I am generally nicer to people that I feel can do something for me. And naturally, I am, I, at least, at the very least, tend to brush people aside if I don't feel that they have anything to offer me. Uh, Craig Blumberg said, when we attempt to discern people's values based on external features, we not only try to usurp God's role as judge, but we fail miserably in the process. Now, what James is going to do in verses 5 to the end is going to give three reasons why this is wrong and why this should not be the case. He's going to give two rational reasons, very logical and thought out, and then he's going to give one very strong biblical reason. Number one, rational reason number one is because God sides with the poor. See in verse number five, hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith? God chose these people. Why won't you choose these people? Uh, God doesn't side with the poor because they are poor. But he sides with the poor who are among those that love him. We continue reading the verse and we see that other qualification there. James is not magnifying being poor. Because in the same letter, he's going to talk about helping the poor. If it was a spiritual advantage to be poor, we would be doing a disservice to them to help them out. We would be, uh, the, the widows and orphans would be the highest spiritual level you can attain. And by visiting them and helping them and supporting them, we would be lowering them spiritually. So that's not at all what James is talking about. But he's not saying that God loves the poor because they are poor, but he loves those who are poor among those who love him. He chooses them though they are poor. It says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? Uh, he, many of the church in that day, and even in this day, uh, many of the church are not necessarily poor, but they're not necessarily rich either. I don't think anybody in this room would say, yeah, I'm a rich person. I'm a rich man financially. I've got, a, I've got more money in the bank than I know what to do with. I've got an extra five grand, and I don't know what to do. I was just going to throw it away. Do you, do you have any ideas? No one's feeling like that. We watch some of these super rich people doing crazy 
things with their money and thinking, I, I wish I wish I could try that. You know, I wish I could have a, a tenth of what you own uh, to be able to enjoy because I feel like I'd use it better. But, uh, but what uh, James is trying to explain here is that the, the church was predominantly made up of poor people. Uh, Paul uh, gives that same sentiment in the Corinthian church. And in uh, the first chapter there, he talks about how many of them were, were nobodies when they came to the church. And, and many of them were, were vile and wicked people morally before they came to Christ. And, and they were still accepted within the church. And, and we look around most churches today, they're not predominantly made up of the wealthy upper class. For some reason, they are the, the poor are generally those who are more uh, willing to trust by faith than the rich. And though they are poor by the world standard in the, in the world's eye, they are rich in God's eyes. It says here that though they're poor, they're not poor financially. They are rich in faith. They're heirs of the kingdom of God. And he's talking about Christians here. If a person is a Christian, though they don't have money on this earth, they still have an inheritance in heaven. They are rich in faith. And so how could you treat them as a poor person? And that's what he's trying to explain to them. And though that it's not a universal fact, the poor seem to turn to God easier and more often than the rich. Solomon Andreas said, God is on the side of the poor, not because they are poor, but because they are responsive to Him and are near the kingdom. Rational reason number two James gives is in verse number six. He says, think about it for a second. The rich are the ones persecuting you. Why are you favoring those who persecute you at every opportunity. But ye have despised the poor. Verse 6, Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before judgment seats. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called. He says, you, you favor those who in your, uh, in your assembly, the very people that drag you into court, they do what they can to take away from you. Remember, again, this culture was a, a wealthy, favored culture. And we find over and over throughout history, and even as we read through the rest of James, we'll see a little bit of it, that the rich would take advantage of the poor, whether it be through collecting debts that they knew could not be paid, or there would be land disputes, and they would take advantage of the poor landowners to, get, to gain their own, to increase in their own land. I read that lower class citizens at this time were not allowed to bring accusations against rich people and that their penalties were harsher for lower-class citizens than they were for the upper-class citizens. And so, in this worldly culture, I'm not talking about worldly isn't the wrong thing, but just in the world that they lived in at that time, it, was, it behooves you to be rich. But he's saying here, you favor these rich folks, but they're the ones that took you to court last week. They're the ones that took your inherit your land away. They're the ones that, that sent you to debtor's prison because you couldn't pay the, the debt that you owed them. And we see many, many times the Bible speaks to that and how we're supposed to not take advantage of the poor that way and, and the dangers and the warnings that God sends to those people who do such things. And yet James says those are the very people that are coming in your assembly and you're favoring them and you're, you're deferring to them. And he says most, maybe more importantly here, you honor the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called. Now, it's unsure exactly what he's specifically meaning there. Is he referring to Jesus, the word Jesus, or the name Jesus? Or um, likely he's referring to the word Christian there? And that it says that they were called Christians. And remember in Acts, when it started off, and, and um, uh, that the, the, the Christians did not call themselves Christians. Nowadays, it's something that politicians label themselves so that they can gain more votes. 
But in that day and time, it was something that was, it was, it was insulting to be called a Christian, or at least they felt that it was an insult to call someone a Christian because they were of Jesus or they were of Christ. And, and he's saying there, and they blaspheme this name that you're called. They, they, they make a mockery of what it means to be a Christian and they make a mockery of the name Jesus. And then they come into your, into your house, into your assembly, and you give them the best place. You give them the highest honor. You treat them with more respect than is due them just for simply because they're a person. I'm not talking about you forgive them. I'm not talking about that you, you well, that was the only seat left. But you're saying you're, you're doing, you're, you're bending over backwards to try to please these people who oppress you, but also blaspheme the name of Christ. Why would you do this? But then he gives the, 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 the scriptural reason. And I like this one the best. In verse number 80, he continues on. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You do well. He goes back to the law here. He's not going to teach anything about a law of salvation. We know that uh, he, he, he's going to teach the same thing that, that the rest of Scripture teaches about uh, salvation in, in regards to the law. But he does go back to the law because this was a predominantly Jewish, uh, Jewish culture. Even the Gentiles were very familiar with that. And he says if you fulfill the royal law, you do well. And this royal law there is not necessarily talking about the Old Testament or just the Old Testament, but it, the word royal there, it's, it's, it's the, the same as we could say kingdom law, and in, gener- and in generally refers to the law that Jesus preached about the kingdom of heaven. So everything that Jesus preached and taught about the kingdom of God that is coming and that he was uh, establishing and setting up on this earth and, and all that that he taught, both in the Gospels and in the Old Testament, he says, if you fulfill the law, good job. But notice what he says. But if you have respect to persons, if you, uh, if you uh, show uh, prejudice, if you show this uh, extreme favoritism, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. If you discriminate this way, you commit sin and you transgress the entire law. Good job if you keep the whole law, but just know then, church, that if you break this one Link in the chain, you've broken the entire law. So to be clear, prejudice is sin. And behaving uh, differently towards people simply because of their appearance is wrong, both good or bad. Most of the time we think about prejudice as treating people poorly because of the way that they look. But James makes it equally as wicked to treat someone better simply because of the way that they look. This is not just simple prejudice, but note, it is prejudice in its regards to the gospel. It's so much more dangerous when we, when we limit the gospel or we, we push the gospel onto people simply based on their looks. And he says if you offend in just one point, you break the whole law. Why? Because all the law came from the same lawgiver. He says the one that said don't commit adultery is the same one that said don't kill. And if you break one, you might as well have broken the whole thing. Think about it like a chain. What, what link do I have to break to break the chain? Any of them. If I break the third one down or right down the middle, it doesn't matter. I still broke the chain. It doesn't matter that the rest of them are there. I still broke the chain. And that's what he's trying to describe with the law. He says if you break it, it's broken. All of it's broken. Anyway, I can just hear these people. Well, we're not under the law. We're free in Christ. And that is correct. And James is not arguing that fact at all because notice what he says then. So speak ye, verse 12, and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. 
Yet we're free in Christ. So now we're under the law of liberty. So speak and act and judge like that you're going to be judged by that law. Not necessarily the condemnation of the, of the laws we understand in the Old Testament law, but as the under the judgment of the law of liberty. And James says, live and act as under that law. We are now freed to serve God and obey His commandments. Basically, he's saying, having been shown mercy, let us show mercy. It's the same thing that John said in 1 John uh, 4, 8, and 11. Basically, having been loved, let us love. And that's what James finishes with there. For he shall have judgment without mercy that showed no mercy. Those who show no mercy in judgment receive no mercy in judgment. And he finishes it with, mercy rejoiceth or triumphs over judgment. What's, what, does he, what does he mean by that? Well, showing mercy is is a way to show that I've been shown mercy. I can show you mercy because I've experienced mercy. As John said, I can show you love because I've been shown that love. If I cannot show that mercy to you, it's because I've never really experienced it myself. James says, we've got to live as though we're under the law of liberty because we are. And because we are, we can show mercy. Show that, 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 that grace. Let me give you three real quick applications that we can, we can take from this in regards to real faith. Number one, real faith doesn't make hasty judgments. Good or bad. It doesn't make a hasty judgment. It means that when someone walks in, we don't say, well, you know, you know, you can tell. Someone walks into church, you can tell a person that generally, like they normally go to church. They, they, if someone walks in and, and, and they kind of have an idea of what, what's going on and they start to sing the songs a little bit, and they, you can tell someone who's never been to church before and they walk in and they're feeling a little awkward. But, J- but James is saying here that, that we don't make hasty judgments just based on the way that they look. Just because someone walks in, they got a suit and a tie on or they're carrying a Bible or because their, their kids' hairs combed nicely or whatever it may be doesn't mean that they're Christians. Just because someone's got a lot of money doesn't mean that they need to be a big wig in the church. Just because someone doesn't have much to offer doesn't mean that they're not as equally accepted. Just because someone looks a little bit strange doesn't mean that they're any less welcome. No favoritism based on appearance or preju- and no prejudice based on perception. We should all accept people. We should accept all people and treat them as we would want to be treated. Jesus said there, love your neighbor as yourself. He calls it the royal law. How do I want to be treated? That's how I treat other people. But number two, Real faith is not ignorant or naive. So as I say that, I don't mean as well that if someone comes in and they've got, uh, we, basic, we basically judge them by their actions, right? We don't judge by our appearance. We judge someone by their actions. If someone came in and they had a criminal history, we wouldn't necessarily, let's say that they, they were a criminal, uh, they've, been, they've been robbing banks and stuff. We don't say, hey, we would like for you to help collect the offering. Maybe even count the money after the over in a, in a room all by yourself and, and then put it in the safe and here's the combination to our safe. Here's a key to the building so you can get in at any time. You know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't necessarily do that because of their actions, not because, well, you're too short. You can't take the offer. Well, you know, you don't have the right nationality to be singing in our church. And you, and you think maybe around here, I, I think it's a little bit more incredulous, but it's not that far off the mark in other places in the world. 
because of the color of your skin or because the amount, the kind of car that you drove up in or because the kind of clothes that you're wearing uh, that limits you from being able to get further involved in a, in, in, a, in, a mis- in a ministry or in a church or in an assembly because of things that are with, far out of your control. And the, but at the same time, real faith is not ignorant or naive. I quickly I put three verses down and because they, they th- three, three came to mind, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1, don't judge, right? That's what we say, don't judge. He says, judge not lest you be judged. But that same passage, he finishes it with the idea of you have a beam in your eye and your brother has a splinter in his eye. Don't go and try to pick out the splinter in his eye until, he says, you take care of the beam in your eye. And then he says, after you take care of the beam in your eye, then you can go and help your brother. That's judging. But he's saying that the way that you judge is the way that you're going to be judging. So it ought to be with that understanding in mind, if I'm going to come and judge with mercy, because that's how I want to be judged as well. I want to be judged fairly, and so I will judge fairly. I want to be judged mercifully, and so I will judge mercifully. And I don't, I don't want to be judged based on my appearance. I want to be judged based on my actions. And those are the things that, that, uh, that uh, Jesus is teaching. And later on, John records, he says in verse 24, he says, don't judge by appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And then we see in, in Romans, Paul says that we are to identify, we are to judge, and we are to distance ourselves from those whose actions would cause problems. He says, mark them which cause divisions among you. And set yourself apart from them. That's judging people. So it's not saying necessarily that we never make a judgment. It's not naive. It's not ignorant. But here the last one. It is merciful. Real faith shows mercy. Because by showing mercy, I prove that I have experienced it for myself. Kurt Richardson said, once faith understands, Once faith understands the salvation God works, that the divine mercy has overcome the divine justice, faith must include a stance of mercy toward others. When I realize what Jesus did for me, when I realize how awful I appear before God, the verse comes to mind many times this week, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Me at my best. This is a gross filthy, disgusting, caked-on filth rag in God's eyes. And that's me at my best, my righteousness, things that I can produce, and yet God accepted me. And when I realize that, and then a person comes in, much like the man that James describes here, with that in mind of how I was accepted, I then can accept. When someone seeks for mercy, and I remember the mercy that I've received. I can more easily give it. But when I forget about my past, when I forget about what happened to me, and I just deal with you now and me, after many, many years of being cleaned up by the Holy Spirit of God, I can say, no, you, you need to stay over there. Why don't you sit at my feet? You're not as good as I am. I don't know why I'm so much better than you, but I am, and so... Sit down here at my feet. Stand over there in the corner. You don't, you're not one of us. You don't belong. That's what James is trying to say. By, by, based solely on appearance, we welcome everybody. Equally accepting all, and we invite them to find the same mercy that we have found with God. 
that is mercy because we know that we are accepted by God despite our appearance. Jesus said in John 6.37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. It's very different than what James is describing in this assembly, isn't it? Those who come to me, I don't say, no, not you. But you, is all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Last, Peter Davids wrote this, True faith has no place for the social distinctions of the world. As we think about that as Christians, as people who have experienced the great grace and the great mercy God has given to us, why is it so difficult then for us to turn and give that to somebody else? Do we feel like we're going to lose what we've been given? Do we feel like we've, we, we've never needed that much mercy as they have? That's why it's so important for us to spend time confessing our sins and reading the Scriptures and seeing what God says about sin and about ourselves and about how broken we are and how about how much we need Him because the more accurate my reflection is of me, remember the perfect law of liberty, and continuing therein, not being a forgetful here, because sometimes the Word tells me things about me that I didn't really appreciate. But as I, if I stay in that and remain and continue there, when someone comes into the assembly, when someone comes into my life, and I don't really like the way that they smell, or the way that they look morally, spiritually, physically, can still extend that same mercy. And honestly, it's nothing in compared to what God showed me. But I'll never do that if I don't remember who I am. Who I am once.